This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. And, you know, I haven't seen Angela around. I think that Angela might be with Clark. But you know what? Clark and Mary were together recently. And also, Jeff, wasn't Trick under house arrest? Am I, am I crazy or was Trick under house arrest? I'm sorry, I can't help you right now. I'm on the phone with Tina. And while I can't tell you everything that she said, in fact, I can't tell you anything. In fact, I'm just going to be silent. (laughs) You're not going to tell me what she said? (laughs) I I made a promise, I think. I mean, that was my interpretation of that scene. You know, in the immortal words of the convenience store clerk who sold uh, Sarah Palmer all of that liquor and cigarettes this week. What? (laughs) Uh, That episode, Let's Rock, which is the title of that episode, ostensibly. Let's Rock. That that was the anti-rocking episode of Twin Peaks. I, I think that we were all set up for, with a title like that, given the mythology of this show, I think that we were maybe expecting some next level craziness. We were going to pass through the black hole sun, back into the atom bomb, out through the other side into some some great black lodge craziness. Maybe this was going to be the episode that Cooper got all of himself back and became integrated and and all of that. Maybe just everything was going to accelerate and... Because after all, this was the second act climax of this whole season. I mean, we we now have six episodes left. We're driving toward the endgame. We thought that was going to be some peak here in the saga of Twin Peaks. And instead, no, (laughs) no, not really. Not really. Like, we're going to pull it back. We're going to, we're not going to rock forward. We're going to, we're going to maybe stay in moment, uh, run in place a little bit. We're going to, we're going to slow things down. We're going to have these long protracted scenes of awkward human interaction, maybe even silence, various. We're just going to live in the moment of so many different little moments of grief, of confusion, of anger, of bewilderment, of subverted reality, of running out of the woods crazy. Uh, like, uh, like I don't know if I loved it. I hated it. It certainly defied a lot of my expectations of what I thought was going to happen, maybe what I kind of wanted. In some ways, though, it summed up all of this season, a season where you start at point A and you have no idea where it's going to go, like a, a story might be about something, then fragment and and wander in a lot of different tangents that lead to dead ends or things that exist just for mood or texture's sake. It was it was extreme. It was definitely one of the pure Lynchian episodes of this season. I I kind of felt, uh, Darren, that this was just Lynch doing Lynch. Lynch being Lynch for Lynch's sake, for art's sake, just being indulgent one last time, maybe before he has to drive us toward the end game and finish this thing. He was certainly enjoying himself. That was my big thought on it. What was yours? Yeah, I mean, like everybody else, there were a couple of scenes in this episode that were so oddly tense with the lack of tension, if you will, or just like, you know, you know, Albert walks into a hotel room, you know he's going to say something crazy, and then there is a three-minute sequence of a beautiful French girl very, very gradually leaving the room. And, like, you know, that scene in particular, Jeff, is what I've been really, like, kind of pondering since watching uh, Part 12. I think I loved that scene, and I think... I think I've come around to really liking the whole episode, but it's definitely like 
intensely frustrating in a way that felt purposeful, I think. I, I kind of like what you're saying, the idea that, you know, this is sort of Lynch's last chance to kind of chill out before the kind of build to the end game. Mind you, w- whenever we use a word like end game and narrative building, you know, our, our expectations <laughs> our, our expectations for that often go all akimbo uh, with regards to how it plays out in the show. But I, I was just struck by the fact that, like, you know, this was an episode where, like, there was just a long night at the Mayfair Hotel, and, you know, there were just these interesting things happening in Twin Peaks. One sequence in particular that I thought was truly momentous and right up there with anything Twin Peaks has ever done, but then that would sort of lead into scenes that almost seemed purposefully anti the narrative that we've been watching so far. And, and of course, you know, there were even just strange moments where it was like, oh, like, I guess we did did need to see them shoot the warden. I guess I thought that was going to happen off screen, but you know, <laughs> now it's now it's happened. We haven't seen him in a while. I'm concerned, Jeff, we are never going to learn who Mr. Strawberry was. That's my main concern coming out of part 12. I think that might be a mystery that uh, sort of gets added to the list of unanswered questions. Certain things here we're, we're going to have to grieve, I think. Like <laughs> yeah, we have time for the French lady making a protracted exit. Don't have time for Mr. Strawberry. Uh, You know, it's funny that you should say, you know, this was just an episode of Lynch just kind of chilling out and being Lynch. You know, Dr. Amp referenced the ninth circle of hell. And do you know what happens in the ninth circle of hell in Dante's Inferno, Darren? Uh, I don't. The ninth circle is reserved for people who commit treason of all sorts. And this was an episode that suggested treason in relationships of all sorts. But the punishment, Darren, is chilling out. It's just people... Fr- <laughs> Seriously, it's it's people frozen in ice up to their necks are completely swallowed up and they're just like remain frozen in place forever. This was the ninth circle uh, of hell episode of Twin Peaks where things were a little chill, were a little frozen in terms of narrative moment movement, but it was also a lot about people in hell. Um, oftentimes in hell because they've been betrayed by people because they've betrayed themselves spiritually, relationally, they, etc., etc. You know, the ninth circle of hell is where you find the devil, by the way, and the devil is described as completely kind of like an impotent kind of like just perpetually frustrated person and Audrey's complete indictment indictment of her of her husband Charlie as this sort of like a man with no balls a completely impotent guy like you know I guess maybe he played the role of devil. Like, these are the kinds of, like, deep things I had to dig for in this episode to kind of, like, uh, to, to make it come alive for me. Like, it, it sounds like you, you've you definitely come around to it. Like I said, I don't hate it, but I don't necessarily love it. And I do kind of admire its commitment to being what it is. Yeah. Uh, um, but there were things that worked, there were things that are not, and 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 definitely defied my expectation. Well, let's make it a gradually build, because my sense from talking to you, and this is certainly like true of my own experience of it also, my favorite moments in it were in the sort of first half, and then the latter scenes are the ones that I'm kind of struggling with. But let's, let's start, Jeff. Um, let's go to the hotel in Buckhorn, South Dakota. Um, the FBI squad, which, which just saw a black hole sun and also saw a man's head explode with no apparent uh, reasoning behind it. You would think perhaps they'd be ramping up their investigation after that. Uh, instead, I-, I think perhaps a real point of tone setting for this episode as Gordon pours everybody a nice glass of wine. I, I love we hear um, Albert mentions that Gordon stocks the plane from his own wine cellar, which is just <laughs> which is just which is just a great sentence to get to say out loud. Um, but I, you know, this was it, it's funny to talk about this episode as if you know it's one that's kind of purely anti-mythology. This was where we got like the Blue Rose origin story, which I thought was interesting and kind of tantalizing. We hear a lot about how Project Blue Book, um, which was an actual real-life UFO investigation uh, done by the government, obviously plays a big part in the original series of Twin Peaks. We sort of learned how the Blue Rose task force 
force emerged out of the burning embers of the end of Project Blue Book. We heard that the members of the of the Blue Rose Task Force included Dale Cooper and Chet Desmond, the greatest character in Twin Peaks history. <laughs> nice to get a, a quick little shout out uh, for him. I kind of liked Jeff. I believe that this was the phrase Albert said that the Blue Rose Task Force was specifically founded to deal with the troubling abstractions that they kept on finding in some cases, which I think is a another perfect phrase for the show. Um, but all of this was because, and this is something that I, I, you know, I'm fascinated by this. They were called the Blue Rose Task Force because that was a phrase uttered by a victim, I think they said, by a woman as she was dying back in the 70s. I thought that was... Interesting. I, I wasn't sure whether to dig deeper into that or if that was just like an interesting bit of scene setting. But I thought that was, you know, Blue Rose is sort of a phrase that we've heard going back to Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting to get some insight into the task force. Um, I don't know. How, how'd you kind of feel about I mean, I guess the flip side of that is this was basically just kind of them saying, well, if you think you know what the Blue Rose Task Force is, you're probably right. <laughs> like, we're not going to necessarily, right. you know, we're not, we're not, we're not revealing any like crazy secrets here. Yeah, definitely. Like uh, the Blue Rose Task Force. I mean, I like that we have official of uh, an official name for it now. The the Blue Rose Task Force, a joint venture of both the FBI and and the military. And I and I like how the the allusion of uh, to Project Blue Book. Um, uh, what we see here is Twin Peaks kind of really kind of pulling together in a very succinct way, all of its mythology pulling in from the Major Briggs stuff. Um, I think this is probably a pretty rewarding episode for people who have read The Secret History of Twin Peaks by Mark Woo! Frost, which I think kind of like d- digs into that maybe uh, a little bit more. Yeah, uh, I liked what you, you pointed out that phrase that Albert uh, used the troubling abstractions uh, uh, from cases uh, of Project Blue Book. And I actually think that language that he used uh, was a little bit of coding for the whole episode in general. This was an episode of troubling abstractions. It wasn't like going to be a, a galloping plot-driven thing. This was about Lynch taking individual scenes that may or may not necessarily have anything to do with the main narrative and abstracting them and finding moods and textures and things to play with. About the mythology, I was kind of interested in sort of like the structure of the Blue Rose Task Force. Um, Gordon Cole clearly leads it, but he hires Philip Jeffries, the FBI agent played by... um, by David Bowie and Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. And it sounds like that Philip Jeffries was tasked with recruiting people to the task force on behalf of Gordon. And that included Albert, Agent Cooper, and Chet Desmond. And as Albert notes, there's only one of those people that's still either uh, <laughs> present here in this level of reality or mentally intact in any kind of way. And I'm not sure Gordon Cole classifies as mentally intact. So Albert is just like <laughs> the, the baseline of, of, of reason here. All of this is in the context, though, of Albert and uh, Gordon Cole officially uh, bringing Agent Tammy um, into the Blue Rose Task Force and sort of deputizing her as an agent. Albert noting that they haven't been too wild about um, admitting new members because, you know, given what, what ends up happening to all of them, all of this taking place in either a parlor in the Mayfair Hotel or <laughs> maybe in in Gordon Cole's room, but is meant, I think, very clearly to evoke a sort of parallel with the red room of the Black Lodge. We note the red curtains yeah. that are conspicuously behind them, and they're sitting on a couch in an arrangement that recalls um, that the three of them recalling the the positions, or at least the you know three people sitting in a room together talking of the man from another place, like Agent Cooper and Laura Palmer. Um, so some t- clear uh, evocations there, and then it's going to get hit harder in a second when Diane walks in, coming in through red curtains. Uh, th- that was interesting. Before we kind of leave this scene and move forward into the Diane stuff, just one note that. 
hitting very quickly the whole um, Agent Jeffries of it all. Again, we see Twin Peaks making a big deal out of Agent Jeffries, this 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 character that you know, unless you've watched Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, uh, Twin Peaks fans who only know the show from the original show have never met, don't even know. But here, once again, 12 hours into this thing, um, we are hitting this character played by an actor who unfortunately is not with us that we've talked about this on this podcast. Is the show leading us to some moment where we're going to see Agent Jeffries in some form? I don't know. But Uh, One other thing I just want to add about that is the scenes in Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me that we saw Agent Jeffries and we saw the Blue Rose team in action had a certain musical cue to them. And we're going to hear that musical cue later in, in this episode with another character in another city. So the idea that Jeffries is mentioned here and the Blue Rose team is emphasized. I kind of wonder if it, if it was part of a, uh, a Lynch kind of orienting us to go find that that moment and that musical cue in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me to to get more context for what was happening in this episode. We'll get to that in a second. But Diane walks in through those red curtains, and what what did you make of of the interaction between the uh, Blue Rose Task Force and Di- and Diane, Darren? Well, you know. <laughs> As with all things Diane, I, I, I do sort of feel the need now with any of her scenes to read like, you know how like there was a point in the TV series Hannibal where like every character was sort of saying things with four levels of meaning? Like that's kind of how I read like anything that goes on between Diane and the other characters now where it's just like who's playing who and like, you know, who's aware of what, you know, they're sort of saying like, you know, we know you have more than a passing in sight into the blue rose it's very clear that like although she was never necessarily on the task force she was certainly aware of a lot of the stuff that was going on there they say they really need need her help they're going to deputize her um you know on the surface there's a game being played here of you know the fbi is saying diane we know you don't want to be involved diane's are saying yes like you know i you know i i don't we know that beneath the surface the fbi is aware that she is still in contact with mr c for all we know she is somewhat aware that they know that i, I just I, i'm not sure how many sort of you know wheels down to sort of dig into this um but uh you know they kind of ask her do you want to join there's a truly incredible kind of moment of like, you know, kind of building and like, you know, the sort of audio on the soundtrack. Perhaps I think that audio might also be from Firewalk with me. I wasn't quite sure that sort of strange audio tone. But then she directly quotes the Formica table scene from Firewalk with me and says, let's rock, which I I found that to be profoundly haunting, actually, Jeff. Like that sets such a tone for the episode that the rest of the episode didn't really dig further into but I, I found that interesting what was your interpretation of that is she are, are we meant to assume that there is some serious black lodge entity stuff happening there or is it just a a profoundly coincidental uh, phrasing I think it's coincidental I mean I think that when they are recruiting her and deputizing her they acknowledge very quickly that she is surely aware of blue rose stuff Um, And I think that she is aware of the phrase, let's rock, because she probably transcribed a lot of Agent Cooper tapes. (laughs) So she knows about let's rock that was written on the car at the old uh, uh, Trout Trailer Park. Trout Trout Trailer Park. Okay. So that's where Cooper first encounters the phrase, let's rock. And of course, he encounters it again with his dream, um, the first major famous uh, dream scene in all of Twin Peaks where we meet the man from the other place for the first time and he says it backwards, let's rock, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. my guess is that he put all those things in a tape and Diane transcribes that. And that's a big reason why she knows anything about Blue Rose is because of Cooper. And so she's kind of like quoting that and evoking that. Um, the, the one thing I would say is uh, what's strange about these scenes in particular, and I don't know if this is really worth talking about or noting or if there's something purposeful behind this or just a storytelling decision. But my take on this is that I, I feel like the logical narrative has been juggled a little bit, which is to say 
that I, I I would have assumed that these scenes that we saw took place before the excursion out to the site with Bill Hastings and when they saw the black hole sun in, in last week's episode. It would just make more sense that they had would have deputized her uh, during this sort of like, you know, evening before the excursion out there and then, you know, explains why they brought her out there in the first place, right? Yeah. Although, no, it doesn't make sense. Well, I guess it does make sense. Anyway, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm debating this idea in my head. It's but, not about but the bunny. I, but I, Is it about the bunny? It's not about the bunny. It's not about the bunny. (laughs) (laughs) I I think what I wanted to say is make the claim that all of the Mayfair set scenes should make more sense set before the Bill Hastings death. And I stand by that with one exception, which is the last scene with Diane in which she puts in the coordinates that they got off of the body of Ruth Davenport uh, out there um, at the site which was the last scene set in in the Mayfair Hotel. This is all to say that my, my guess, unless we're, Lynch is playing some games with us and disorienting us for some grand purpose, messing with our sense of reality for some major reality shift that's going to happen later in this season, my guess is that maybe he kind of thought that all of these things would, would just play better after the Bill Hastings stuff. And especially since that they were, it was all driving toward the idea of Las Vegas being dropped into the mines now of the Blue Rose Task Force. My guess is that's their next stop. So maybe he wanted to play all these scenes when it made more sense when they were about to embark on that. I think you're right, Jeff. I I certainly think that at least that first Blue Rose scene seems to make sense coming much earlier. Like, I mean, that seems to be kind of welcoming Diane to the club. and, And it just seems like she's been a part of this club for a long time now um like as, as far as as far as this narrative goes i am struck though that it almost seems like he took all these scenes that happened to be set at that hotel at nighttime and over the course of the episode, you're kind of like, God, how much stuff is happening here? It's like, you know, they have wine up in Gordon Cole's room, and then Diane goes down, and she texts, and then, like, you know, Gordon meets the French girl. And it's, you know, it, it's a sort of long last year at Marion Bod evening at this hotel that just seems to never end. And I am, I'm kind of a sucker for hotel scenes. It's like, you know, another reason why I love The Leftovers so much was how it kind of used the symbolism of, of, of hotels endlessly. And I am just struck by the fact that, like, before this episode, I would have not thought that the Buckhorn Hotel was a particularly, like, necessary or interesting setting for the show. And I I was interested by the use of it, but you were talking about Diane typing important story locations into her phone was a big thing this week. Um, She received a text from Mr. C. Uh, The entirety of his text message was just the words Las Vegas, and she said they haven't asked about about that yet. Uh, Albert, of course, intercepted this text message, had a conversation about it with Gordon. When I awoke this morning, you had sent me a text message with a uh, extremely deep reading theory about that scene. Uh, would you would you like to elucidate on that theory or, or, or have you theory shifted with regards to what Gordon Cole says about Las Vegas? Oh, yes. <laughs> you threw me out. I felt I was a little on the spot all of a sudden. I was like, oh, wh- what did I tell you? Because <laughs> all of my texts that I send you while watching Twin Peaks in the midst of my brain worrying, I think are immediately forgotten and obliterated by the next text I send you. Um, um, <laughs> um, so what was that theory again? <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's see. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I can do a – let me try to do a, a, a stage reading of this. Big question. Cole and company were stumped by the latest communication between Diane and Mr. C. What do you know that we haven't told her about yet? Asked Cole. This is you asking me, what do you think it is? One idea... I love that you do a new paragraph in this text. One idea is that it's a trick question he's asking himself. One thing for sure they know but haven't asked about yet is this very intelligence. They have not asked her why Cooper sent her a text saying Las Vegas. So the irony will be that when they ask her about it, it'll be because they now know they have to ask her about it. <laughs> that's that's one of my that's one of my favorite texts and one of my favorite thoughts that I've ever woken up to. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I, I would throw this out to you and to the to the listener too. Like I'm still kind of beating my brain, like which is really badly and poorly beaten after 12 episodes of, of Twin Peaks. Which is what do they know that they haven't asked her about? In some ways, probably a lot, but it almost felt like that we were being invited to reflect on this question and find some one specific glaring thing that should be jumping out at us. And I'm, and whenever a show does that to me, I suddenly get a little stage fright. Like, mm. well, what is that one thing I'm supposed to know? I, I don't know. <laughs> um, so then that ends up leading me into some kind of like crazy tangent where I think I find out and it's like, oh no, it's just this really obvious thing that you're not paying attention to. Oh, okay. So like, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but other than that, I, I, I kind of stand by my weird like observation there, which is some kind of paradox. One question I kind of have is, does do we think that Mr. C probably knows that the Blue Rose group is monitoring his communications with Diane? Does Diane know or have reason to suspect that her communications are being monitored? If so, then then I think my theory, my observation to you via text might be relevant because they are having conversations that are meant for the Blue Rose group to find to see and then prod them in certain directions. So yeah, I, I'm confused by that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you, Jeff. Like I I do think that however much the Blue Rose Task Force, what a fun phrase to say. Uh, however much the the Blue Rose Task Force thinks they kind of you know have one over on Diane and on Mister C, I do think that like they probably know that they're being watched and are perhaps guiding our FBI heroes um, to some place that they should not want to be. Um, you know, we've we've talked about this how like you know the Gordon Cole of this season is kind of fascinating, and I thought that like you know this week's episode maybe one reason why I like this episode so much all kind of comes down to the look on David Lynch's face during that kind of extended sequence with the French girl and then afterwards when he was talking to Albert he had that great phrase like you know he had that he he had that great line where clearly all Albert wanted to do was tell him like hey like I got some plot to get into here David Lynch do you want to get into some plot like you know we got some important and like I just loved David Lynch being on screen saying Albert can you believe there are 6,000 languages being spoken in the world today like I, I find I find there to be something intriguingly almost confessional about moments like that. I, I do sort of wonder if we'll look back on the Gordon Cole arc, perhaps not necessarily guiding us anywhere we didn't expect. I mean, the fact that, like, indeed the coordinates lead to Twin Peaks and the implication being that they will be going to Twin Peaks at some point, you know, this does kind of lead the average person to wonder, couldn't you have gotten there like 10 episodes ago or something? But I do wonder if on the Lynch side of things, he's kind of saying like, hey, no, like, you know, we should be enjoying every moment of this and sort of, you know, taking a very holistic, transcendental meditation view of the world, which I find that moving. I do kind of wonder if, you know, the fact that Mr. C probably knows that they're watching him. You know, we've discussed this, Jeff. If David Lynch, like, dies in this season, if his character dies, if he's, you know, surprise twist killed by Mr. C, the vision of one of David Lynch's most famous creations, Dale Cooper, kind of run amok. I think we'll kind of look back at an episode like this and think a little more. It, I think it'll it'll have resonance that, that we're not seeing yet. I, I'm currently working on my written recap of this episode. And one of the first things I say is, I bet you that several episodes from now, we'll look back on this one and kind of go, we'll like it better. We might understand it more and we'll appreciate it even more in the context of, of the season. Yeah, like... Of the various things that happened in this episode that I was, you know, some stuff I loved, some stuff I didn't, this is right about in the middle for me, but trending toward liking. And what I loved about it was the meta of it all, of just yeah. sort of, of here is this, you know, so Albert has to come in, has to do some serious plot business. And, and so this lovely French woman has to leave. But she kind of takes this protracted exit of enjoying her every 
move required to get herself together and exit the room from putting on her shoes and kicking them up and and, and smiling and <laughs> adjusting herself and putting on lipstick and taking one last drink of her fine Bordeaux and then and, and just Lynch just watching it with this big smile and uh, just delighting in her every move and then escorting her out. And I love the look on his face when she's putting on the lipstick and you see Lynch's face and his lips are kind of like pursed like hers and (laughs) cocked to the side. Like, you know, Lynch, if you've ever read about his sort of interest in women in femme fatale, uh, a film noir, I mean, he loves lipstick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And he loves the female form and he's just, he's like, as I tweeted out during this episode, he's just owning all of his obsessions here. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's just like, what? You know, it's, it's, it's Lynch playing Cole, acknowledging David Lynch's obsessions. And he's not going to apologize for him. If you find anything just a little queasy or creepy or offensive about this, like David Lynch doesn't kind of really care. I mean, he'll have, he'll give you a character that maybe speaks for your objections on many levels in form, in the form of the punitive stares of Albert Rosenfeld. Yep. (laughs) Right. But you know, he's a 71 year old man. He's at the, you know, he is who he is and he's just kind of owning it and he's just, and, and, and he's going to delight in this. So he walks her to the door and they have this protracted goodbye where she puts her finger to the lips and then she kind of like, like teases him about where she's going to plant this virtual kiss on him and ultimately puts it on his cheek and he just kind of loves it. So here is David Lynch looking maybe toward the end of this saga. Like I said, we're at the end of the second act. There's only one more act left to go. We're here at the end, and here is this other character who is taking this protracted exit. I would just argue that both of these characters in this scene are David Lynch. Um, It's David Lynch acknowledging that the end is coming, (laughs) that we have to go. And and, and so he's, but he's just going to play it out. He's going to protract it. He's going to enjoy it. He's going to join himself. He's going to live in this moment for as long as he'd like. Um, But I think he also acknowledges that he has a story to tell. And that's Albert's representation too. Like, you know, Albert comes in to kind of like, can we move this along? Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. We got story to tell. We got places to go. We got stuff to investigate, damn it. Moments like that, I'm always kind of like, okay, well, I know who the David Lynch character is. Albert, you're probably the Mark Frost in this relationship. You're probably like, oh, let's just kind of, you know, let's <laughs> let's keep things moving here. Um, did I text you about this, Jeff? I had like a Dune dream over the weekend about David Lynch. No. I'm just kidding. Okay. Everyone out there, I, I apologize, but dreams sometimes hearken to truth. Um, so uh, be- <laughs> so um, because it is one of Jeff Jensen's favorite movies, uh, I, have, I have been forcing myself to watch the Dune movie that David Lynch directed uh, back in the early 80s. Uh, so Jeff, uh, I'll be I'll, I'll be honest with you. I started the movie. I decided early on that I'd play a drinking game where whenever they said the name Harkonnen or Atreides, I would drink. Um, unfortunately, by the half hour mark, I was pretty well soused, so didn't manage to finish the movie that night. But as you'll recall, there's a cameo by David Lynch during that first big sort of sandworm sequence. <laughs> Do you recall this? He's, he's yes. the technician who's like nah like we're on arrakis um so that scene was actually the last one that i watched that evening i had a dream where david lynch in that scene only had one arm but there was another david lynch sitting next to him which of course i've I've been thinking to this all weekend that's exactly like in firewalk with me when the one-armed man is sitting next to uh the arm And in my dream, both David Lynch's killed themselves. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means. What? Yeah. I think think what that means is this season is going to end with the two Coopers needing, like one Cooper will have to kill himself so the other Cooper also dies. That's my interpretation. Could also mean that Gordon Cole is going to die this season. I don't know. Just going to put that out there in the world. We're going to see. If any of this comes true, this is going to be a true prophecy dream, and I'm so excited for that. You're listening to a Twin Peaks podcast with Jeff Jensen and Darren Franich. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Well, two tips for you. One, don't hire Gordon Cole as your headhunter, because every time he tried to recruit someone to the Blue Rose Task Force, usually bad things tend to happen. Just ask Philip Jeffries if you could find him. 
Tip number two, think ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you could post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else, even Gordon Cole. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. And remember, say no to Gordon Cole. But let's move on. You know, before we leave South Dakota, we'll just briefly mention that those wild assassins in love, the Hutchins, did indeed pay a visit to the warden. You had sort of said, Jeff, that like this scene in general almost felt like it was perhaps somewhat of a parody of a Tarantino-ish scene. You know, you kind of have these two actors who were recently co-starring in a big Tarantino movie. They're sort of having this very nihilistic chat about like, ah, like, you know, we don't time to we don't have time to torture him because I'm kind of hungry so just kind of really like all business warden comes home two bullets in his back as the warden's son is crying out for his father Tim Roth just sort of turns to Jennifer Jason Lee and says I think he says next up Wendy's if I recall correctly because <laughs> earlier in the scene when they were waiting for the warden to arrive they're talking about how they're going to kill him, and we are we're, we kind of cut into the scene where we we come to understand that the conversation that has been playing out is is that Jennifer Jason Lee's character, who is all hot and bothered to do some torturing a few episodes ago, now really just can't be bothered to torture the guy because she's hungry. And on their way to the warden's house, they passed a Wendy's, and that kind of triggered a desire for Wendy's. So I like how she's just as being portrayed as this creature of appetite. Like in the <laughs> moment, a few episodes ago, she was hankering to do some torturing. But here in this moment, eh, she's hankering for some Wendy's. So, uh, you know, like Hutch is like, well, I, I, if you want, I mean, I could just shoot him in the legs and we could just take him in here and we could, we could torture him later. <laughs> She's like, no, just like, I just really need to eat. So she, the the warden arrives, like he opens up his little, like, you know, hatch. Hutch has a hatch in the van and opens up the hatch and like, you know, takes a beat on him through his like rifle. And I I love that shot where we're looking at him and you see his big eye and the scope. And meanwhile, she unrolls her window, pulls out a bag of Cheetos and just starts munching on him to watch the show. And yeah, then he, yeah, like he puts her puts down the warden. The boy comes out, daddy. Like, and once again, Lynch sort of not like forgetting the cost of violence and just kind of like adding a new emotional texture by like completely subverting an otherwise scene of glib nihilism that reminding us of the tragedy of the whole thing. And yeah, there was something so Tarantino-esque about this whole episode from just the long drawn out scenes, the love of language to this sort of like sort of like micro portraiture of sort of like glib nihilism that comes at sort of this really profound human cost. And then he's like, next stop, Wendy's, which kind of reminds me of every other Tarantino fixation with, with hitmen <laughs> eating fast food or that one scene in Reservoir Dogs where Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth, I believe, yep, are yep. doing some kind of stakeout and Harvey Keitel afterwards says, let's go get a taco. Um, and... And, you know, Tarantino, I think, would acknowledge that one of his influences is Lynch himself. And there's a lot of early, like, Tarantino in particular that feels very Lynchian in absurdism and its surrealism and its uh, and the glibness and the banality of it all. And um, so it, it felt like in the thing that that I've kind of been arguing all season long that this is Lynch reflecting on his career, but maybe reflecting a little bit on, on maybe – the cinematic movements he's been part of and maybe even helped influence 
doing both maybe an homage of Tarantino and maybe a little bit of grieving of Tarantino-esque, like, uh, you know, pulp nihilism. Yeah, um, and it's funny, you sort of mentioned the little boy kind of grieving his father with an eye towards the synchronicity that I think Lynch is often trying to create within these episodes. I'm struck that this is also the episode where the one single moment that we got with Dougie in Las Vegas was him going outside to throw the ball around with Sonny Jim. Just such a wonderful... I. I <laughs> I just love the uh, <laughs> one of the best things about this show is you just don't ever know is a scene going to be like 10 minutes or two seconds. And indeed, you know, we sort of get to Las Vegas and, you know, I'm primed for the expectation that anytime we cut to Vegas, it might suddenly be the rest of the episode. You know, like you just you just never know. So to get this scene where Dougie just walks outside, Sonny Jim sets him up, just throws the ball at him and the ball just like a, just, just ricochets off of his body. And that's it. <laughs> I thought that was delightful. <laughs> As Benjamin Horn will remind us in a few minutes, we, we all need father figures. And so um, this was actually a refreshing, tiny little take on that. I love how when the ball he throws the ball at, at Dougie, not only does it bounce off him, uh, it doesn't even bother trying to catch it, but like Dougie like rocks a little bit. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it kind of like knocks him a little bit. It kind of sways a little bit. And then I'm completely convinced, Darren, that that ball was total CG. I re- <laughs> I, I I rewatched that scene like uh, several times, and either that ball is just totally fake, or that's a CG ball. Because like like just go back and look at that scene again. It bounces off of him in a really weird way that doesn't really look real, um, and it's like Kyle MacLachlan who like deserves every awards consideration like for Twin Peaks that that there could possibly exist, and I really hope he does. He's like, you know, I'll, I'll do everything, anything for you, Lynch. But the, uh, but, but, but there's one thing I won't do is I just won't let you let a kid throw a ball at me. <laughs> That's where I You're draw the line. You're gonna have to CG that ball. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna draw the line right there. You're not. I'm not gonna have a kid throw a ball at my face and maybe do some damage because you know how important my face is to my work. I've spent half this season rocking a mullet and a like divorced dad look of all leather. I'm not gonna let you throw a freaking baseball at me. <laughs> My mind is is kind of racing now, Jeff. You kind of mentioned how Ben Horn, of course, mentions the importance of father figures. Um, I I think really, if there was an emotionally, you know, Twin Peaksy core of this episode, it was um, hanging out with a character who, at this point, almost represents like the demolishing, destructive possibilities of a father figure run horrifically amok. Sarah Palmer, last seen watching animals devour each other on television way back in the season premiere of Twin Peaks. She is at the supermarket getting what looks like her regular allotment of big things of Smirnoff vodka and cartons of cigarettes. Um, She notices some turkey jerky and gets real turned up by that. Um, The words she used, I thought this was real just classic Twin Peaks unexpected casual horror. The world seems different. Men are coming. I'm trying to tell you, you have to watch out. Things can happen. Something happened to me. I thought that just Grace Zabriskie's reading of that line was so oddly moving and so weighted given what's happened to this character. I'd sort of mentioned in my quick write-up after the episode, you know, if you're ever prone to wonder who's being possessed, which we clearly are constantly with this show, I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff happening here. The fact that she's kind of talking to herself in the third person. But how did you kind of feel about just how we kind of resituated with this character? I mean, Sarah Palmer is somebody who kind of looms large. I feel like in season two, we only ever really checked in with her when she was having strange red room visions. Um, I thought just the sort of sad banality of her life in this episode was really moving and really kind of horrifying. But how did you kind of feel about how stuff kind of played out with her in uh, this in this chapter this is a scene that we've been waiting for in in the ramp up to twin peaks the the very few images that were leaked to the press or given to the press as promotional images or combined into little teaser ads 
this shot of her shopping for booze was was one of them and it's one of the last remaining images from that teaser campaign that that you know there's a couple more that we haven't yet seen including you know big ed who hasn't shown up we know he's coming because we saw it in the teaser uh, trailers um but but this was one um and that looked haunting and sad in the trailers and it was every bit as haunting and as sad and weird um as we might have imagined um sarah palmer alcoholic um under the influence of spirits if you will is under the influence of spirits in a completely other way there definitely seems to be some kind of supernatural forces that are subverting her reality and i think that anytime she might experience any disturbance in her well-ordered world that is probably the only thing that gets her through her life um it just completely unsettles her so yes when she sees a wall of turkey jerky like you know here um in this store a convenience store mind you i think i probably yeah let's call it a grocery store but again we have convenience store motif if you will but but yeah she sees this turkey jerky on the wall it wasn't there before and it just kind of completely unsettles her and it's like it triggers this sort of feeling of the uncanny and i got in 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 that moment darren a sense that she was maybe under the influence of something like either something within her that she's just trying to bottle up or maybe something almost taking her over and she's starting to ramble about like you know they've been here like you know the men are coming i'm I'm wondering if maybe those men represent the woodsmen Mm -hmm. um it is in this sequence that we start hearing that eerie music that i referred earlier to in the podcast the music from twin peaks firewalk with me it might have been from the original show too i just can't completely remember it and if you guys have can, can place it from the original show please tell me but in twin peaks firewalk with me we first hear it in the scene in um Dear Meadow, when Chet Desmond and Stanley are doing the autopsy on Teresa Banks and they kind of like pull her stiff rigor mortis arm underneath Stanley's sort of like old fashioned suitcase telescope and they pry off her fingernail and pull out the letter that Bob has left behind. You hear that weird distorted music, but you hear it also in another scene in that episode it's the epi- it's the scene when when agent jeffries comes into the fbi and starts kind of going on and on about judy yeah. So we experience some kind of time distortion in that scene. He walks in past, you know, Agent Cooper and he's like, we're not going to talk about Judy. And he starts talking about infiltrating one of the, the meetings of the Black Lodge uh, and their home above a, a, a convenience store. And just his whole like performance, David Bowie's whole performance in that scene as Jeffries, it feels like someone who is like under the influence of something crazy. I just felt that that there was maybe some intentional mirroring there between Jeffries and Sarah Palmer. Interesting thing that Agent Jeffries says in that um, scene um, in Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, he says something like, it feels like that we're all just trapped in a dream. And um, the idea of dreams is mentioned in this episode of Twin Peaks a couple times. And I have a feeling that we're going to maybe hit that theme a little bit more moving forward. But um, I just thought that that was an interesting kind of like audio illusion pointing us in the direction of of Blue Rose intrigues and mysteries and betrayals uh, in that sequence. Yeah. And just, you know, whether the implication is that, you know, she is literally possessed by some Black Lodge entity or just, you know, something that really hit me is like just the image of this woman who kind of lost everything in the original series and who in a way, you know, in a way had already lost everything before the stuff was literally gone. That was just so haunted by like the horrors going on in her house. You know, you sort of want to see that person 25 years later and be like, ah, like, you know, they've, you know, turned their life around and like, you know, she's like doing meals on wheels and stuff like that. And it's like, nope, she has just been trapped in an eternal spiral of like damnation since then. I love just, you know, Hawk kind of showing up just to check on her very clearly. I mean, she is just so absolutely like the old person in town that everyone is just sort of faintly concerned about all the time. 
and just the horror of that scene too and like the sound from inside the house her just kind of muttering it's just something in the kitchen just a lot of great tonal stuff happening there that you know again not sure where it's leading but I I found it sort of moving and eerie all at the same time let's do a quick roundup of what's going on with the Horn family this week Jeff Jerry's out of the woods Jerry's out of the woods Jerry's out of the woods out of the woods yeah that was a horribly botched Taylor Swift reference. Um, ben uh, got a visit from Sheriff Truman. He's now been looped in on the fact that his grandson uh, has just been really on a tear through town lately. I was texting with you a little bit about this after the episode, Jeff. Uh, Richard Bamer, I think is how you pronounce it. Possibly Richard Bimer, who's always been great as Ben Horn. His sort of like remembrances of the green Schwinn bike that his father gave him, I thought was so intensely moving. I love that they sort of like took that moment. It felt very much in keeping with the spirit of that character. Um, but uh, I guess the thing we should talk about there is that Sheriff Truman has is now aware that Cooper's key has arrived back in Twin Peaks. I, I I love the kind of gradual passing around of that key throughout this season. Um, what did you think of, of that kind of back and forth between Ben and uh, Sheriff Truman? That whole scene was great. I mean, I think it was one of the exceptional, successful sequences in this episode where playing long, playing with silences, playing with a mix of banal language and really poignant reflection um, a scene that begins in one way and ends with some uh, meanders to some other to its end was just really beautiful, anchored by really great acting, really unfussy direction. It was really great. I got the sense that uh, Frank uh, isn't necessarily too impressed with the Horn family. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, he came to uh, – one of the things that I thought was an interesting bit of subtext is that he, he came to tell his uh, – uh, Richard that his grandson uh, – he came to tell Benjamin that his grandson Richard is was kind of up to no good. But his true agenda there, besides maybe trying to figure out if Ben has heard anything from Richard, is uh, someone has to pay for what was done to Miriam. And, and Miriam's in the hospital. She has no insurance. She needs an operation. And his very gentle but transparent manipulation in that moment of Ben is, uh, you're rich. I need you to pay for this. Yep. And the other layer of subtext there is that, as I, I think we've talked about in previous weeks, uh, that Benjamin Horn as this really fallen soul who, despite being very aware of his fallenness, very understanding that he's just had a, a as rich as he is he's had a pretty loser life that has created a lot of misery and that this grandson is part of a, a, a legacy of evil that he has initiated that that he is needs to take responsibility for someone does and so and then that kind of like combined with this, you know, Ben telling us that that Richard never had a father and then kind of going on this rumination of his own dad who bought him this used bike, painted it two tones of green, put big fat tires on it. And he just like sort of in awe that his father would do that with him. Uh, kind of an irony there, isn't there, Darren, that that. Ben is sort of ruminating on this man who didn't have a father, and maybe that explains why all these bad things happen, that he's gone bad. But but Ben had a father. Yep. And, uh, yep. Ben had a good father, and then Ben turned up turned out to be a, a, a big devil. Before we get into the Audrey of it all, one quick note on Miriam. We did check in on Miriam. She's in her hospital bed. Um, she's still on life support. What was on the bedside table of flowers, they looked like blue roses. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Did not know that. And now I am extremely intrigued. But uh, let's dig into Audrey Horn suddenly reappeared. I love just like the shot that she reappeared in. I, I believe that we sort of cut in on a shot that was already kind of moving and she just kind of suddenly was there. I, I love that after kind of expecting to see this character for so long, she's just sort of introduced like she's always been here. She had a conversation w with her husband, Jeff. Uh, it's fair to say this is a marriage that is um, not one of the more successful couplings on the show. 
as indeed she is a little more focused on someone named Billy, which which seems to be a simultaneous reference. A lot of people have sort of wondered if that was the Bing you know, name that was being yelled out at the double R a few episodes ago. I prefer to read it as a deeply meta thing. And she's actually talking about Billy Zane, the actor who played (laughs) her love interest in season two. No surprises there. (laughs) I think this scene lasted for 20 minutes. I loved, I loved everything. Just the, the facial reactions uh, during the phone call were so wonderful. Uh, I have to say, Totally at a loss as to whether this was another moment, um, like the woman in Buckhorn just saying 30 names at once, if like the joke is just sort of trying to keep track of it all. Um, this, this I think, Jeff, may have been the scene that broke you, if I could judge from your, from your tweeting uh, during the episode. What are your thoughts as you're kind of looking back on this interaction between Audrey and her husband, Charlie? Yeah, the long-awaited return of Audrey Horn. Like when the second we see her on screen, it was both momentous and anti-momentous. It was like you know uh, we've been waiting for this the whole time, uh, for for a long time, and we just kind of cut into her and this strange interaction with this husband of hers, and the dialogue that un folds between them on which she is searching for this this man that has gone missing named Billy. I think that like what we were what what was trying to be accomplished here was this like this long scene of conversation in which your understanding of what the conversation is about but also your view of Audrey is evolving and changing right before your eyes as the conversation goes in these crazy directions like initially I kind of thought that Billy was maybe her son a child um, between <laughs> like between them but then the conversation kind of turns and you kind of understand that I think that she's having an affair with Billy but then there are all of these other other people that are involved like like uh, you know some guy said that Tina said that this guy said that uh, like and what I really wanted to experience in this in this moment is something that I was kind of describing which is that like this was just an offbeat way to bring Audrey back into the the, the story and sit with her and get to know her and just kind of like almost meditate on the person object that is Audrey Horn through the filter of all of this or this, this interesting relationship and crazy uh, relationship and just wanting to fire our imaginations and capture our imaginations for what happened to this person between seeing her get blown up at the bank um, at the end of the original Twin Peaks, learning that she was in a coma, might have been violated by Mr. C, and now is clearly grown up and it was such a weird scene and I didn't know, I didn't know whether to trust even the reality of the scene and their conversation between them and the hints of a contractual marriage, maybe a sham marriage. I don't know if it was the way it was written. I don't know if the way it was shot. I don't know if it was the way it was acted. I just felt like it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Like whatever Lynch was after here, it didn't work the way it was supposed to be working. Now, it may not work, in my opinion, because it's, it's one of these classic things that he does where we're just like dropped in the middle of something without any benefit of any context of what's happened here. And over the next several episodes, we might get more context. And then we'll go back to this scene and then we'll watch it completely differently. If so, I look forward to that. But as a way to sort of introduce her or as a way to do Lynch doing Lynch or doing some kind of like, like, you know, set piece of, of Lynchian like Lynch stuff. I just didn't feel like it was top notch. I didn't think it completely worked. Well, I was going to say, I mean, like, you know, on the topic of Lynchian Lynch stuff, you know, there are, it'll be fun sometime to do a sort of like attempt at like graphing, like, you know, 
what is Lynchian when it is truly achieving what it is setting out to do? Which I would say, like, the Sarah Palmer stuff. It's an incredible mix of, like, the banal and, you know, that convenience store is in no ways a stylized-looking convenience store. It feels like you're watching something out of it, an extremely realist film. And the shift from that into just the malevolent horror and the lack of understanding of what's going on with Sarah Palmer, that's, like, you know effect achieved this did feel to me more like you know something from like the uh, you know scenes from wild at heart where there's just like things happening that seem weird for the sake of being weird and even like you know the scene has already gone on for a long time and then charlie says oh why don't i call tina and at that point you're just kind of like oh god like i don't know how much longer i can possibly linger in this room for i do think you're right though jeff i think some part of what made that scene hard to watch was the fact that this was sort of our reintroduction to audrey and you know where she's at is perhaps not where we'd have, where we would have hoped she would be, and the fact that she's just sort of yelling at her husband about her lover—it just you know we're we're being dropped into season ten of a soap opera involving these characters, and we're just kind of at a loss for what's going on. I do think that you know the conversation about about the truck, about how Chuck stole Billy's truck last week. There's the idea that like is that the truck that Richard was driving? Not totally 100% clear you know if what um, Charlie was being told on the other end of the line was something about Richard that might explain the look on his face you know more so than just him being told something too horrifying to tell Audrey I don't know I don't get it. I, I'm not sure. I, I, I did sort of feel like just Audrey telling him to, just to, to get off the phone already was a feeling that I had quite vividly. So I think at least there's some awareness in the filmmaking here of just what he's doing. Um, but yeah, that was a long yeah. scene. <laughs> and a couple interesting choices worth reflecting on, but let's not like think about it too deeply, which is was that like the repetition of names i think that her husband's name is charlie yes right yes but then the conversation also involves a guy named chuck named chuck so, yeah <laughs> yeah so there's there's charlie and chuck so there's interesting doubling going on but with slightly different names i actually think that like his end of the phone call was the most interesting like thing and piece of acting in that moment. Yeah. Um, um, I, I forget the name of the actor, but the way that he conducts his end of the phone call and captures your imagination for what the conversation is. And uh, my guess being that at the end of that conversation, he's being told by Tina, you can't say anything what I've just, you know, I can't, you can't, t- don't tell anyone what I've just told you. And he's going to honor that secret, <laughs> um, even to his wife. And it's just going to drive Audrey crazy. Um, that I thought that was interesting. Just want to give a shout out to a theory that I've been, I've read on Twitter that I do think is, is interesting in a way that is not well, uh, there's a flaw in being interested in the theory that, uh, that I'm about to describe is that there are some people who are wondering that what we're seeing here is not really is is not what we think is is happening that that they're not married that Charlie and Audrey are not married that maybe like Charlie is her therapist and that Audrey is incredibly mentally damaged. And this kind of conversation is a conversation like loop that she gets stuck in that has to be just sort of like talked out and reach some kind of destination to reset her like she's that unhinged. That theory attracts me, uh, is interesting to me. Um, but the reason why it's interesting to me is that it's because I didn't, don't think I really like the scene. So I want a theory to make it something different into right. something that I like, which makes it a bad theory, right. um, in my opinion. That, <laughs> so it's just, it's just a way to deny the fact that the scene wasn't very good. Sure, sure. This is like my theory that the last half hour of Spectre is all James Bond's dream as he lies dying. But in fairness, that does make the last half hour of Spectre 
chapter so much better. So some bad <laughs> theories are still good theories. We'll just kind of wrap up here, Jeff. Scene at the Roadhouse, Chromatics playing again. They were, of course, the first band we saw playing there. Somebody out there must be constructing a timeline theory based on which bands we see and if each band is there on the same night. I don't quite have the kind of bandwidth for that yet, but I'd be very intrigued by that. Um, and, and just one note, that scene was a lo- was another sixth season of a soap opera sequence with a lot of characters we'd never met before. I think the main takeaway was that somebody tried to run Trick off of the road, headlights coming right at him. He almost got killed. I suspect we're going to find out who was driving that car. My suspicion is uh, it was Dale Cooper. You know the the Dale Cooper returned to Twin Peaks um, again. We've we've, oh. we've well, just because you know we've 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 discussed this. What's happening in Twin Peaks probably happening after what's happening in Las Vegas and South Dakota. That's my own you know hopeful interpretation. Or Jeff, maybe maybe we just had to check in on Trick. You know. He's lucky to be alive, sounds like. <laughs> he was under house arrest, you know. He was under house arrest. Now he's arrest. a free man. Right? <laughs> um, uh, and the episode ends on on maybe another line that speaks for sort of the anti-rocking quality of Let's Rock. Um, <laughs> whoopee! <laughs> This really kind of like sarcastic, like like tossed off whoopee, like which was kind of funny. Um, by the way, before we sign off, just want to say I just completely read that scene as Trick got run off the road by Richard Horn r- roaring out of town. But again, I love your theory that it might be Agent Cooper, and that could then be just one more scene with context erased from the sequence. Once we get that context, we go back and watch this episode and we love it and and appreciate it in a different way. So yeah, I I don't want to hate on this episode. I had a great time talking about it with you. I think it kind of came to life for me in a way that like I, I, so that I like it more like that than I did when we began this conversation. But, and I just want to be very clear about this. My least favorite episode of this season but not to say it's bad because I love this season of Twin Peaks so much. Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, if theoretically there's an episode later this season when, say, I don't know, like David Bowie and Chris Isaac are just driving through town running people <laughs> off the road, that'd be cool too. That'd be cool too. <laughs> Everyone out there, we love hearing from you, love talking Twin Peaks, would love to hear if you have any hot theories. The more crazier, the merrier. More crazier, huh, boy? Please tweet at us. He's at EW, Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. Uh, you can email us, twinpeaksedw.com. While you're at it, if you like this show, let us know. Go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a rate and review. Love to hear from you. Love to hear what you think. We have six episodes of Twin Peaks The Return left. Six more chances to understand what happened to Billy, if Chuck had anything to do with it. Maybe it was Tina. Who's to say, really? Jeff, always fun talking about Twin Peaks with you, man. 